0: Promise No Promises – Ages of Receivership The podcast Promise No Promises unfolds a further series of episodes devoted to Ages of Receivership on Generous Listening. The series emerged from the Spring 2022 Master Symposium at the Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW, moderated by Chus Martinez and Quinn Latimer, in collaboration with Vuslat Foundation, which focuses its activities on the act of generous listening, hearing beyond words, understanding it as an essential element of each of our connections and constellations. The contributions to the symposium were devoted to forms and ethics of listening and how they are entangled with aspects of poetics, coloniality, gender, spectatorship, critique, and non-human worlds. While hearing has, until recently, often been described as a passive act, listening is broadly understood as an active way of engaging with the other, with oneself and with nature. If certain assumptions subscribe listening and storytelling to women and elders, the broadcasted voice is often gendered as male. The talks of this series discuss such ancient and recent ideas about the politics and gender of sound, while addressing listening as a key methodology in reaching goals of political, ecological, and artistic equity, from decolonization and democracy building to issues of mental health. This podcast series features talks and performances by Kate Lacey, Ora Zatz, Dylan Robinson, Bill Dietz, Noor Mubarak and Jasmina Figueroa. Episode three, Hunger. Dylan Robinson is a Squa artist, curator, and writer, as well as Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Arts at Queen's University. In 2022, he begins a new appointment as Associate Professor in the School of Music at the University of British Columbia. Dr. Robinson's work spans the area of Indigenous sound studies and public art, and takes various forms including writing, from event scores to auto-theory, gatherings and inter-arts creation. This range of forms offers him a space to integrate the sonic, visual, poetic and material that are inseparable in Stolo culture. His book, Hungry Listening, Resonance Theory of Indigenous Sound Studies from 2022, examines indigenous and settler colonial practices of listening. Considering how engagement with indigenous music is often guided by individual listening positionalities, the book advocates for opposite forms of writing that convey sensorial, effective experience of listening.
1: Indigenous songs are many things. I mean, the some of some of my work looks at the way in which our songs have been used. Um, or appropriated in the worst case scenario by composers who, uh, you know, use them because they sounded beautiful, right? They're they, they're treated as aesthetic works, um, and our songs are beautiful. Uh, so, so you know, I can understand that for in in that way. But, but the other side of this is that our songs also serve very many functions. Um, particular songs serve different functions, as you said, medicine. Or um, the one that one of the ones that I look at in Hungry listening is um, uh, what's called a Oy by Gitsan Wetsuten nations, that is the equivalent to, or at least is used in a court case as equivalent to land title, the document. You know, what we would understand from a Western perspective as the evidence, as you said, the the um, you know, the proof that this land belongs to Gitsan and Wetsuten folks. And so it's a it's a landmark case, a landmark court case, because it really put um, customary law or oral history to the test. You know, the 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 judge in this case, judge Justice McEachran said, "Well, you know, demonstrate how how you understand these lands to be yours." And uh, you know, the the elders, one of the elders, Mary Johnson, there said, "Well, of course, I will. i sing you the song." And he said, "Oh." you can't sing a song this is not this is not a performance space this is a court of law mm-hmm. and you know there was this foundational misunderstanding there that this this song demonstrates getsen what suitten folks's um, historical ties and and you know rights to the place and in fact you know some uh, talk about the ways in which it brings folks back into, you know, through that song brings, brings those who are Gitzan and Wet'suwet'en back to that place through listening. Um, and, and that place is felt through listening. So it's really interesting there because, you know, we could say, well, this, this song is is the equivalent to land title. Uh, it is equivalent to a, um, you know, to law, a legal, what you know, we often call um, indigenous legal orders, Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's different than that. We can't, we can't just merely reduce it to a Western equivalent to law because, mm-hmm. for example, it's only felicitous. The, you know, the song only acts as authentic because it's felt. You know, so that's a very different orientation to Western law right there. We don't, we don't say, oh, yes, that law is true because I can feel it. Right? Yeah. Or right, that law right. is true because uh, it brings me back into relationship with this, um, this land, this place. Yeah. So, so yes, we have really different ontologies of what song, what song is, what, and and those are very different from nation to nation, from community to community. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm speaking in a about a specific instance here, and there are very many other instances where song acts as um, life giving. Um, you know, it actually inaugurates, um, you know, uh, the growing season, like Hopi folks understand, uh, sort of you know, the, the, the the act of, um, you know, growing and providing for their communities as taking place as initiated by song, in in some cases, it serves as medicine, it serves as primary historical documentation um, about our, uh, our histories as Indigenous people to the equivalent, like to the same level of detail often as a book would Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but it's also you know so'm I'm, I'm giving all of these analogies I'm saying you know it's 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 like medicine it's like a book it's like law um but I'm also aware that when we analogize something um we kind of reduce, reduce it, it, in it. A way yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah. it's also complicated you know it can't just yeah. simply be reduced to the equivalent thing from a western perspective yeah um, but it's a I way mean, to sort of share a conversation <laughs> around what what song does for indigenous folks
2: right. I mean, I was really struck by um, uh, one of the recent texts I read of yours was about uh, Rebecca Belmore, the artist, about this um, large sort of public sculpture um, by the sea or by a body of water. And you describe uh, leaning down and trying to listen into it, and at, at some point you note that... Um, that even though you're not actually hearing anything or not hearing very much because it's like a very quiet day the water is very peaceful it's very peaceful where you are um, that you felt like that this form of listening was actually about bringing your body maybe closer to the land that the listening was somehow in situation in relation to the landscape itself that so the listening was feeling the land as as opposed to um, sort of receiving some sort of content or some sort of um, knowledge or narrative that you could easily spell out. And I was wondering about this about this relationship between um, listening and landscape um, yeah, for you.
1: yeah, it was a um, a really interesting experience because I well, firstly because i was i'm I'm stalo, so Uh, My community is located on the west coast of Canada. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Tostalo actually means the river and all of our communities are located along what's now called the Fraser River, named after Simon Fraser, the explorer. But of course, you know, we don't we don't give that history much uh, credence. But (laughs) um, uh, so so, you know, I am I through my history and who I am, I'm connected to this body of water and and. uh, but moving to hear, you know, this this piece, Wave Sound, it's called, it was called Wave Sound by Rebecca Belmore in Mi'kmaq territory on the other, the very opposite end of the country was really interesting for me because I have very few, uh, you know, relationships and, and very little knowledge of Mi'kmaq history and, um, you know, how Mi'kmaq folks understand their relationship to land how they listen it's not you know our our histories are so incredibly different i mean we're we're talking about this great expanse here of the civil you know similar i tell my students a lot of the time you know imagine cultural difference between england and russia Mm -hmm. and you're covering a pretty much the same span you know i I, you know at least it's a good way to imagine between the east coast of canada and the west coast and so, you know, so so many Canadians, as well as Indigenous folks like myself, were are never taught these histories. We, you know, we know so little often other than our own, uh, you know, I know Stalo and uh, Kholmach, uh culture and, and history, right, that's where mm-hmm. I'm from, it's who I am. So being called to listen in another Indigenous people's land to another Indigenous people's land is a really interesting, um it raises some interesting questions about what I can actually hear right of mm-hmm. of that land and that was in my mind when I went to um went to see this well, see it you know it is also a large a very very large um uh, conical listening uh it's like a what do you call those but a listening device okay. right yeah like a, yeah
2: like an ear horn or ear not, horn. I don't know what yeah, the that is, word that is, exactly like that. yeah yeah
1: um, that is made from a imprint of the land. So Belmore took a, uh, made a cast of the land formations and then used that to, um, to make a casting with, uh, you know, using aluminum and then design this. So it's actually made from the imprint of the land. So you're actually listening through those formations of the land to hear land or mm-hmm. water or whatever you might hear. Um, but what do I hear? What do I, what can I hear? What knowledge, uh, you know, what knowledge can I gain from, from this experience? And for me, it was a much more, in in going to listen there, what happened was something much more simple. And in fact, you know, the frustration of being able to actually hear any waves <laughs> or any sounds um, made me realize that the you know this this action was more about placing my body alongside the land she designed the work in a way that it's quite low to the ground you actually have to contort your body and kind of crouch alongside the ground kneeling or you know partially laying on the ground in order to actually access the opening to the Mm -hmm. to this earpiece to this work um and so yeah for me it was much more about this foundational question of how do we how do we understand how we listen right listening Mm -hmm. is defaulted to a process of the ear often I mean lots of folks have talked about how that's not the case um but we we don't you know we don't often think about lying our bodies along the ground in order to listen and so Mm-hmm. And having that kind of connection, I think is so foundational mm-hmm. um, to land for for so many um, indeed all indigenous folks. Um, mm-hmm. So so yeah, that's what it was that was what it was about, this kind of reorientation yeah. of body upon the land um, as an act. Yeah. Of
2: I mean, this is actually quite interesting because I think this is also something that you point out a few times that the the sort of um, you know, western conception, of listening is very much focused on like a single sense on the ear. And so you're, and so you're, and it's and it's based on sort of content and, and narrative and knowability and understandability. And then you talk about it in this larger sense of, of listening with your body, listening with your experience, listening with your past, that it's um, that it's something that brings in history and memory and landscape, and as you spoke before, medicine, law um in various formations and i was wondering um about this at some point um i am i can't remember quite who it was but you you cite a feminist scholar who is working in i think sound studies and basically about her saying you know we need to learn um to listen differently and to like listen without knowing like to to open it up to make it um listen maybe to listen without certainty somehow and I was wondering how, how that is balanced with this idea of memory and history and evidence, which somehow feels so, if not certain, it feels very noble, it feels very real, it feels very material, it feels like a very material history, a very um, factual history for lack of a better term and so how to this idea of of listening with this kind of unknowingness without certainty and at the same time it being a form of like history and being a form of memory how do you sort of reconcile these things
1: yeah i mean i should i should give a bit of background context too and say that i uh, you know in a lot of my work i'm coming from a context of um, western classical music or art music Training from a, you know, background of musicology and um, music education, where Mm -hmm. listening is treated as a very atomized thing, right? You learn to listen Mm -hmm. for, through ear Mm -hmm. training, you learn how to recognize um, parts and structures and um, chordal progressions and harmony, all of these kinds of things that really break, it's a form of listening that breaks apart the listening object into its component parts. Um, it's not a holistic way of listening, really. Um, it's not a listening that connects history and structure and feeling and um, you know positionality. It, it, these things are are not really taught within this Western framework of uh, we we train ourselves to listen. And so this is in complete contrast with. Um, Connective practices of listening that I think a lot of Indigenous folks use um, to to place. But in in our, I, I talk about Lam, um, uh, which is from Stalo, from Stalo perspective, the way we listen within the longhouse, the way we do our our work of of telling history, of of you know um, coming together as a community. This is tied always. This kind of listening is tied always to a presence that. You know um we we are we are are listening seeing feeling um and and doing so in a way because we may in the future be called upon to talk about what we heard but talking about what we heard isn't just the accuracy of retelling the words right what was shared the Mm -hmm. linguistic content the the knowledge that was shared it's part of that it's part of that that kind of detail Mm -hmm. of listening is has to be there but what also has to be there is the connection to um, how that was shared you know with with through movement and dance through um the visual presentation through the person that was sharing through our relationship to who that person is those parts also need to be connected if we're asked to recount what was shared in 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 those moments in the longhouse and so, you know, it's a very different kind of listening. And and I wouldn't say it's just that, you know, when, when I say in the longhouse, I mean, you know, through, you know, the, the ceremonial work that we do in the gathering that we do as Indigenous mm-hmm. folks, but we also take that out into the world as well. It's not a kind of clear distinction as like, this is ceremonial listening, and then this is everyday listening. I mean, there's overlap there too. Um, mm-hmm. But it is it is just so different, I think, to the way that I was trained as a um, yeah. as a music student, um, and then, in, in fact, turned away from that training, uh, because it felt so foreign and, and then violent in many ways as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just did not, um, it didn't, didn't work with what I wanted to do. And so moved into mm-hmm. art history and cultural studies from a sound and music perspective, rather than following the path of a, you know, a, a music student or a music degree.
2: Yeah. But I mean, this is actually quite interesting because this was gonna sort of lead me to another question. I mean, also the context in which we're speaking, which is, a symposium on listening in a master MFA program at an art institute. Um, and I, I'm interested in this, this kind of connection between, um, between the like auditory and the visual, because I think as you've probably seen increasingly in the past uh, five or 10 years, there's this emphasis on sound art and on sound practices, on listening as a kind of methodology and ethics in the art world. And it's quite interesting, actually, all of this exhibition making, which you tend to think of as like a visual, (laughs) optical thing that's having to go around um, with, uh, yeah, with listening and with sound. And um, in this uh, track of yours that I listened to earlier today um, called Song Life, uh, where I believe you're kind of reading, you're reading a text. But you you recite this line. You say we listen to the museum's hunger, its many mouths, and I was really struck by that, by the by the kind of beauty and darkness of this line. But also thinking about the museum's hunger, it, the museum is a kind of mouth. And I think, and I was hoping that we could speak a little bit about this, you know, about appropriation, of course, but also this relationship between um, between the museum and listening and song basically
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah it's so i mean indigenous folks have such complicated relationships with museums uh, you know who sent ethnographers out to collect aspects of our culture, either material culture or songs, because of this understanding that our cultures were dying away. This, you know, what's often called the salvage paradigm. Um, You know, ethnographers were going out to salvage what remained of of our our culture um, very actively, very actively, especially Canadian museums. Um, You know, ethnographers and uh, museum staff were paid to to go out and, and take what they could and you know my ancestors understood that things were pretty precarious as well because of you know uh at that time like in the 1920s um already 30 or 40 years of um you know the the indian act which prohibited us from singing our songs actually and and cultural um, presentation as well as the residential schools, which were intent, you know, their intent was to separate indigenous folks from our culture, um, to to enfranchise us, right, um, to become Canadian citizens. But but all of it was a, um, a violent wresting of our culture away from us that happened at the same time as, as this ethnography, ethnographic practice to collect. So I think the museum, you know, the museum is founded upon this hunger, right? The museum is founded upon the hunger of alterity, to, 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 to gather and amass culture um, to share with the world, to share with the general public, um, but disconnected often from actual people, right? Where it comes from, our, our you know, our communities and and um, indigenous nations. And so so that hunger is there at the very beginning, you know, the very the very foundation of what the museum set out to do. Um, but it but it continues as well in the um, you know in the in the way that this you know the the structures of the museum I mean, in that in that that audio work that you were listening to I was narrating my experience of going into the museum where the you know it's these filing cabinets right are drum the filing cabinets filled with drums filled with life because also we don't understand um are that we don't understand material culture to simply be inanimate it has life it is our ancestor it is um a relation of some kind of family member sometimes and so and this is various again from from community to community that it's not all the same kind of life at all and I wouldn't say that you know this was my the 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 drum is my grandfather in the way that my living human grandfather is also my grandfather so there's a lot of difference there but um You know it it is this kind of consumption and containment uh driven by a desire for i think for for display and for um you know there's there's this kind of relationship i think too sometimes that i see to cornucopia right this this Mm -hmm. um you know the horn of plenty that that displays sort of uh the richness of 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 food i there's an overlap here with visual display within museums often when i well, ethnographic museums specifically where i see you know mask and mask and mask and mask it's like i'm going into a um a, you know a, some a, a place that where, where this kind of treasure chest is just sort of uh overflowing but of course what it's displaying to us is that this is not within our these these things all of these things that are our relations and our you know um that have life have been taken and and used purely for their visual um or educational purposes they are still they still remain disconnected from um you know from our practices which are i mean when i say practices i mean from those functions i was referring to before as um you know uh promoting indigenous health or medicine or law or history making all of these things so it's not it's not just you know it's the the museum turns it into an object for consumption
2: right and i mean you, you noted this thing that was that was so interesting because you said you know these 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 pieces which are which have been turned into objects but are not originally objects like like other lives, they have a lifespan and perhaps they're not meant to live forever. And you note that these kind of this kind of display, um, this museological ethnographic display culture where everything is put into a vitrine or under plexiglass, that it's a bit of it's a kind of life support, but it's a kind of life support that like is a is a form of death in some sense. And then you make the switch, which was which was very interesting to, to the history of um. Of ethnographers, um, a musicologists collecting thousands of indigenous songs, and sometimes even um, transcribing that, and you uh, just transcribing them and recording them, and you note that that transcription is like a form of toxicity; that it also has a form of, you know, death. And 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 I don't know. I kept being, I kept noting your your kind of movement between what we would call like visual culture. And 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 song or music or sound, and I was wondering if for you um, they're just completely embedded. If this is one of the ideas about listening, um, a kind of decolonial listening or anti-colonial listening strategy that has to come about. That this that this not taking a part of basically the visual and what one listens to, um, because mm-hmm. you make this leap so often in your in your writing, where you move from one to the next.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I think it is, as I was referring to before, you know, that we, we have often more holistic practices of um, even even the word, like when I said before, hualualam, it, it mm-hmm. means witnessing, listening, right? We use it for both. Yeah. Witnessing yeah. from a Western perspective is a visual thing quite yeah. often, the eyewitness. Um, but we we use that to reference witnessing because we understand witnessing to be a very um, full, fulsome, um, you know, um, connective practice. I think that the word listening might not always gesture towards. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there there is that kind of connection between the, the visual. I mean, but between the sensory. I mean, I don't want to list, limit this just to. Yeah. Um, you know uh to, to 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 the visual i think i think there are other it's a more fulsome sensory orientation yeah. toward the things that we we do towards you know sort of being in relation with land or other folks yeah. um
0: but i will also
1: say it's you know it's also part of my my maybe i'm not sure if i should say it's part of my training or i went did this work because it was you know sort of culturally um related to to who i was um, but yeah, I, I, there is this sort of overlap in, in my work pretty consistently, as you know, between visual studies and, mm-hmm. and sound studies. Um, that's yeah. a, that's a natural, a natural kind of thing, thing for me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I will also say just to clarify that toxicity yeah. that you were referring to. Yeah. Um, really again it's this visual uh, or maybe material culture and auditory culture shift mm-hmm. because there is a history within ethnographic museums of 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 treating our masks with arsenic and other toxic materials that okay. literally makes those masks and other um, material culture toxic for us to touch you yeah. cannot you, you cannot um, detoxify arsenic from uh, any of those things. And so to take those back, if we're talking about repatriation, you know, to right. bring those back to our communities would literally poison us right. um, if we were to use them, right? We can display them, we just can't use them. So yeah. I was thinking it really prompted me to think about sound and transcription because songs were also um, subjected to a process, the technological process of, mm-hmm. of, of recording of of gramophone, yeah. And so I was thinking using that as a prompt to think about, well, we don't often think of um, you know this kind of early form of recording ethnographic recording as a toxic process. Mm-hmm. But I wondered, you know what 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 changes happen within that process or within the written, you know the the transcription into notation? Mm-hmm. What changes happen through that? Are they toxic, similarly? Mm -hmm. um in a different way than we might you know we we can easily say arsenic toxic right (laughs) but but it really made me think about about how to um not not think of transcription as apolitical or a uh, you know as not having some very serious ramifications for the life of the thing that was recorded because songs as well have life
2: absolutely and i think I mean to just go back and I guess into the realm sort of a metaphor but that the um that this idea of the vitrine and uh, and something sort of trapped in a vitrine you can also like very easily like then make one step and think about the song that's like trapped in a record you know yeah. that's unplayed that's there but also like not being heard basically not being not given life
1: and that and that was really you know brought Uh, brought home in the work that I did around this opera Louis Riel which uses a it's a you know an opera by a non-western by a non-indigenous composer that uses Mm -hmm. an indigenous song Mm -hmm. Um, Harry Somers was a you know Canadian composer who used this Niska song that had life um, and he he used it without permission of Niska people and it was it was so eye-opening, ear-opening to me to hear my Niska colleagues listen to this part of the opera where their song was used, was where it was appropriated, and understand its use as a violent act against the life of the song. Okay. They actually heard it as, as a kind of dismemberment of I mean, that might be too strong a word, but, but a kind of violence toward life mm-hmm. rather than a kind of copyright infringement or something that was um, merely misheard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so when we think about that, you know, these kinds of life, it, it changes the stakes of what appropriation is, right? Yeah. Because we, we often think about appropriation from a Western framework, a le- Western legal framework. Of of misuse or so intellectual yeah. rights, right? Yeah. All, all of these things, and and we can certainly treat it in that way, but when you understand songs as having life, then the stakes change, right? About and, and the stakes of the museum also change because, uh you know, as I say in one of the writings that I shared, we can't just think about display as not having consequences. It's it it can be thought of as a carceral action, mm-hmm. right? To to yeah. confine life. Yeah. So, yeah. absolutely. It changes
2: I mean a lot. I mean I think that this this idea of life and also um some of the tra- texts you shared and the tracks I was listening to I'm interested in in listening and its um its role in kind of human non-human relations and relationships. And I I've, I've noted um you know the past years that at the same time that this idea and methodology and metaphor and ethics of listening is is continually raised in the sort of cultural context in which I work. Um, The the rise in sort of non-human-human relationships, it's also happening, it's in parallel. And they seem to actually cross over quite a bit, this idea of of listening as a form of relationship with the non-human. And I was wondering if you could talk about that From both, like, you know, uh, the standpoint of Indigenous epistemologies, but also in terms of your work as um, coming from from music and moving into art history and being a scholar and so forth.
1: Yeah, it's some of my more recent work. Um, I mean, I have a chapter on, uh, not fully on, but related to non human uh, listening, you know, similarly as I was just saying about when we when we when we understand the act of listening as an engagement with life rather than merely an engagement with a song as an object mm-hmm. then that changes the ethical relationship that would list, uh, of what listening is right mm-hmm. we have to answer different questions right when we think about what is listened to as having life um but it's also so i i, I i've been expanding that a little bit in my more recent research to think about um, public art. It's one of the um, other areas I, I work in and and think as well about the relationship of both sound art that is in the public, outdoor public spaces, um, and physical, uh, you know, material uh, public art and its relationship to land, right? Because again, um, land also has life and we can think yeah. about this from a Western scientific perspective, or from an indigenous perspective. Um, but what does it mean when we are putting uh, sound into place, right? How is it, how is it engaging with that life? And so the question then becomes one of how how that life listens, right? Which mm-hmm. is a kind of impossible question maybe mm-hmm. not impossible, hmm. but hard to answer question, mm-hmm. because our human capacities are oriented toward, we, we can only hear as humans, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, we can imagine hearing, or we can, we can think about hearing as something else, but um, it's hard to actually know uh, what, uh, how, how you know, how our non-human relations, how land-specific, I guess this is what I'm thinking of, uh, is hearing the work that we do and what kind of impact that has on non-human life and I think mm-hmm. it's a really important question because as you say there's so much work going on uh both in sound art practice as well as you know in the sort of um sound in the I mean the Anthropocene right this is yeah, kind yeah. of like the two the two two of the big yeah. <laughs> areas <laughs> of work right yeah. in the in, in this time that we're in right now with good reason I think um but I I think the larger one of the larger questions is also um, how do we how do we create sound art work that doesn't just feed back into the human like to the to to consciousness raising for the human mm-hmm. because there is so much work that is oriented toward uh, climate grief and um, you know ecological uh, environmental issues that is that that does as its prime has as one of its primary goals the education of the viewer right Right. or the or the human the human audience yeah and i think it's really important to switch that you know to switch that primary audience back towards the life of the land so that we're not actually resourcing the land or or telling it um you know uh this is how you're dying (laughs) because surely the land already knows <laughs>
2: <laughs> pretty aware, I'm sure it's
1: pretty aware. Yeah. yeah
2: i mean it's interesting to think about actually when you were just talking all of a sudden i thought about which i had never thought about this before but because um you know one of the kind of major um sound art practices is also based on field recordings in some mm-hmm. sense you know field recordings which is also like taking sound from the non-human it's taking sound yeah. from the land it's taking sound from animals it's taking sound from the wind yeah. um and it's interesting to think about it by switching the positionality as you just did what this act of taking these sounds and then and then re reprojecting them you know putting them into speakers and re-putting them out in the world like what what is this doing um mm-hmm. because you're right there is a there is something about sound that is also linked to, I think, pedagogy. You know, it's much, it's like, we're often thinking it's like, it's supposed to be a teaching experience or it's supposed to be a, a come to realization experience. It's supposed to, you know, say something. Um,
1: I think sound also has this promise of transcendence as well, or a kind of, you know, a knowledge that is beyond the visual, beyond the material, Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it's very role, you know, Romantic idea, but I think it has a promise. It holds a promise. Maybe I'll I'll, I'll remove the word transcendence there and think about like yeah. something that that is uh, has a different sense of truth or or authenticity or something. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and so I think it 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 uh, really does function in that pedagogical realm um, of yeah. sharing something. But uh, but I also appreciate you bringing up the you know, these histories of field reporting. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure many folks there will know the World Soundscape Project uh, that took place in Canada, led by Armory Schaefer, mm. uh, as this form of documenting soundscapes, you know, as, uh, as they were before they changed. I mean, the undercurrent was before they changed, before they were no longer. And there's a very uncomfortable relationship there to... Um, salvage paradigm ethnography right mm-hmm. it's kind of mm-hmm. gathering of indigenous culture yeah. before it dies away um, and and i think one of the questions that i have for that i haven't i haven't done you know actively worked on this in my in my own research but but yeah what what are the ends what are the what what does it what does it mean to gather and collect and um you know store those sounds that have and and do those sounds have life do the recordings continue that life or are they a document of that life i guess there's there's another yeah episode. i mean because you
2: could you could think about it in terms of like audubon or something you know what i mean That uh, yeah. like we're not like we're not like collecting the birds and depicting them but we're collecting their sounds before before they die off somehow yeah. Um, and then using them in our sound art installations, which are supposed to warn about the collapse of the ecosystems and so forth. Um, yeah. I, I, another question just quickly came to me, and I don't know. I I've, I've been quite interested the past year years in uh, Marianne amache's work, and one of the things is this idea of the as the ear not just being a kind of receiving device, but actually shaping, but actually creating its own sounds.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: and I was wondering if this is if this is something you think about somehow that basically um, this this act of listening as a kind of full body experience is also shaping um, and creating the very sounds that we're supposed to be receiving, but it's mm-hmm. actually emitting in the same. i I think I'm I'm kind to get to this sort of um, speaker receiver relationship mm-hmm. and maybe the mutability in that
1: hmm i i mean i i i uh, haven't thought of that uh you know too much in my work but it makes yeah. me you know it just re- returns me to this the, to the basic fact that the that which is receiving also constructs yeah. the thing right because none yeah. of the apparatuses that we use um are, are kind of uh pure medium right they they all have they, they whether it's whether it's our bodies or our ears or technology there are always changes that take place right through the the act of you're never doing pure a kind of pure reception <laughs> of yeah. something that's unmediated yeah. mediation is everywhere and so um, one of the ways that I really think it's important to understand that mediation is through our individual positionalities mm-hmm. so we are all uh, you know individual Um, uh, human beings that have come from a culture, you know, collection of cultural, um, uh, you know, um, gendered, uh, class-based, like we are, we are formed as subjects in in very particular ways and those allow us certain listening capacities Mm -hmm. and they also disallow us from hearing certain things. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm, I, I'm very much committed to understanding how our unique individual positionalities frame that which we are able to hear and that which we are unable to hear. Yeah. Um, And it's not, it's not, this isn't intended as a kind of, uh, you know, checklist of, you know, just identify all the ways you can't, you you know, your positionality doesn't let you hear things. I think it's actually just a, it's important as a process, right? Mm -hmm. So that we don't, we don't use positionality as a, as a kind of, okay, I'm this, 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 and this, and that means I can hear this and I can't hear that, right? (laughs) It's not so cut and dry, right? Yeah. Um, but it is important, I think, to, to act, to allow what I call, um, you know, positionality is a kind of background hum mm-hmm. that we can tune into and tune out of as we're, as we're listening to allow a kind of softness of, a soft awareness of positionality mm-hmm. to um, guide us toward listening thing, to things differently, whatever that right. might be. Yeah. I mean,
2: this reminds me of the, the history and the anecdote that, that you talk about, about this idea of the tin ear. The settler sort of colonizer tin ear when the judge says, you know, I can't hear this song as a kind of legal uh testament or defense or evidence because I have a tin ear, and he's like basically just saying, like, I can't hear this, but I won't listen to this either, you know. It's and both, yeah. It's both simultaneously. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And how do you think? um How do you think that this pos- positionality, of course, intersectional as it always is. I, I'm thinking about because also for our students like sort of strategies of listening and strategies of opening yourself up to to ways of listening that maybe your positionality doesn't doesn't clue you into it first or doesn't allow you to how do you go beyond no. that like what are these kind of anti-colonial decolonial strategies of listening
1: basically yeah, yeah. so what I do with my students actually is work through we, we spend a lot of time on, Um, teasing out what our positionality is in really nuanced ways um, that for a lot of the time doesn't actually have anything to do with listening at first right and just we're just like focused on positionality and trying to help ourselves understand what our um, you know who, who we are right and I think I you know I work with students to build that up into a very thick context that can just that can sit there we don't need to like we don't need to actively engage with it when we then think about listening because there's this paradox that if you are hyper aware of all of the ways in which you might not be listening to something you know, um, if you have a normative way of listening, if you're hyper aware about that normative way of listening, it actually takes you out of the act of listening because it's <laughs> sort of you're focused on the on the, you know, on the context rather than the, the listening experience. Yeah. So that's why I like to think about it as a background hum as something that can just sort of sit there and and be lightly present rather than trying to flip into um, a different kind of listening positionality. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, as I write in the book, it's this is not, listening is not a kind of um, iPhone filter that we can just sort of put on and (laughs) and allow us a different kind of thing, right? We can't, I can't just simply say, oh, I want to listen to that work um, as a Black person might listen to that work. I cannot, I cannot sort of switch positionalities here um, in, in that kind of easy way, but I can listen alongside, and I think that's really important to be able mm-hmm. to understand um, that that there are things that I can't hear, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. the knowing knowing that I can't hear certain things is a, is an equally important kind of knowledge.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I finally I wanted just to get to this um, very bald, basic question, but it's something that I've been thinking about the past years, and also as we were sort of organizing this symposium on listening. Um, why do you think this this turn and this emphasis on listening at this moment in time, um, both uh, within the academic world, but I mean very much within contemporary art practice and contemporary art theory, you know, listening is, has suddenly become one of these kind of inescapable words that you come to again and again. I mean, for myself, I always think it usually points to exactly the opposite. So the listening is because we are not at this moment listening, but I th- it's bigger than that, obviously. And I just wanted to know, I mean, this is your field of study, what you think about this kind of turn lately and, um, and yeah, how you deal with it.
1: Well, I, I think that listening has been um, marginalized maybe, or listening has been treated as the purview of music scholars um you know through the very design of music education as a very insular uh practice often through music theory right you one of the one of the things i i still regularly encounter from folks who um who don't have a music education is that is this preface people will say oh i don't know anything about music but you know and then they'll go on to say what they're saying and it's this way of acknowledging i think that um you know the real understanding of music comes from music theorists and music musicologists and folks who have that kind of very particular training Uh, and I think that's taken a long long time to erode I think that I think that's one of the things that started to happen over the past I don't know 10 years or so right that that erosion of uh you know important knowledge coming from those who are not trained within this this way of 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 learning music you know this legitimacy of of what knowledge about sound is mm-hmm. um you know from from other places of course there have been folks doing this kind of work outside of that you know but but i would say in a more general way right it's yeah. been treated as a very um you know hands off this is you know this is not this is not for you um yeah. So I think that's one thing. I, I also think that sound, you know, and listening has taken on this has has a tie to, you know, that word I used before. I'm not sure if it's exactly the right word, but transcendence, right? There's a promise of knowing something through listening that's different mm-hmm. and important um to visual experience or um, other forms of sensory experience. Um so those are two things I think that are in play. Um but yeah, I think you're right. Also, that you know, um, how did you how did you just put it? You know, it's because because folks aren't listening. I think, yeah. and it's and it actually does. It feels like such. It's a common um, common kind of way to experience something. You know, we'll say like, oh, just hear me out for a second, or can you let's listen to this together, or you're not listening. Um, but it's much harder, I think, sometimes for folks, maybe because we don't have the same kind of, um, what would you call it, sonic literacy or um, listening literacy that we might for, in, for a visual literacy, right? Yeah. Um, that we don't, we don't maybe get exposed to this even as early as primary school uh, in, in detailed ways where we, where we might within the visual or linguistic field. Yeah.
2: But it's interesting because it almost feels also like this shift because I think in, on another hand, like, um, you know, music and sound is one of the sort of most popular in some ways accessible art forms and the way it sort of, and I'm, I'm not talking maybe about like more avant-garde art practice, musical practices, but, you know, popular music. Yeah. And yet recently it's sort of shifted from thinking about it as like a concert or a music. To a space of listening, so somehow mm-hmm. the emphasis is not on those who are like singing or playing the instruments or producing the music, but those mm-hmm. who are receiving them. I mean, even with um, with Documenta uh, fourteen in Athens, we had a, a, a sound program, and it was called um, the listening space, mm-hmm. and it was really and so again, everything was even though you know the the curating of it was with composers and sound artists and sound installations still the naming of it was about the receiver it was about the person you know and Mm -hmm. i think this switch is something that yeah i think about quite a bit and i haven't um yeah <laughs> haven't quite gotten to it but there is something your book and this term also hungry listening I was wondering if maybe we could end this a bit um just by talking about like where this term comes from this hungry listening sure. and um and also like where this how how this book kind of emerged from from your work and your scholarship
1: sure uh so the the term hungry listening comes from, um, or I began thinking about it as I started to learn Halkanalam, which is the language that Stalo folks speak. I didn't grow up learning or knowing the language. Um, my mother uh, didn't grow up learning the language, my grandmother knew a bit, but um, when I when I started to learn the language, I really understood what people say when they say everything is contained within you know the language and the words like ontology is contained within within those words how words are put together the larger kinds of meanings they have and and, and two words really stood out to me um in terms of my own research and the first was uh uh which is the word that we use for settler um you know newcomers who came to our land in the in large numbers you know in the space of a few months thirty thousand people uh you know surveyors for the gold rush came up into our land with a, uh with a hunger right they were they were hungry for gold um and they were also literally hungry they, they were starving and so we experienced that hunger in this very sharp change you know change of 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 presence of newcomers on our land who were you know who were trying to take the land's resources gold in this case um but also taking up space right taking up the the actual sites on the river where we would fish and uh, you know have gain sustenance so this term um Qualitum actually means is the term we use for settler or newcomer but it actually means starving person or hungry hungry person um and i was interested to think about that as an orientation not about not about the actual uh, subject you know the person but about the hunger right this this kind of orientation toward the world this orientation toward consumption hmm. um, so that was one of the words and the other word is which i've mentioned before which is the word we use for listening but it's actually also the word that we use for this larger fulsome orientation toward listening how do we witness witnessing is the is the other um term we often you know what we say this translates to and i i was just struck by the fact that if we were going to talk about a settler colonial form of listening we might in this case do better by being specific and talking about listening as a form of consumption um and and that consumption that hunger that starvation uh towards uh, knowing uh containing holding knowledge right holding knowledge is a static object perhaps that we yeah. that is a commodity um rather than a relation relationality uh, relationality around knowledge and knowledge is a changing thing that is always shared at specific times and in specific ways um you know again it's a very different, um epistemology that indigenous folks have that knowledge is not uh knowledge is not free that's right? the, the saying that information wants to be free right and we would say mm, information is always situational uh you know changing on who's in the room and if it's the right time to to share this information and, and this kind of thing so so i was i was really thinking here about listening as an action that was guided um uh by a, a normative consumption right of of knowledge mm-hmm. um that that wasn't wasn't relational and that was a better way for me to think through um the kind of settler colonialism of listening mm-hmm. um, a more specific way for me to think through that uh, but of course you could say the same it, it could it could be listening or it could be other forms of of experience That's in the world right. as well yeah
2: of this kind of extraction or consumption or yes
1: yeah, yeah an extractive an extractive mode mm-hmm. of uh, uh, yeah of, of, of uh, amassing amassing mm-hmm. and collecting and those those words of course have have ties back to the museum too.
2: Yeah yeah, it's interesting because I think I think on a kind of surface level, um, most of us accord listening this kind of um, you know positive ethical note. Like listening is is somehow a, a form of um, a form of giving, a form of sharing, and it's interesting in the, in your title how it like completely is sort of turned on its head in the sense um, before.
1: You know. Yeah, I but I mean, I think also it, we, we, would, we would do well by understanding listening in its many negative and positive configurations, mm-hmm. right, um, mm-hmm. that are gendered and raced and yeah. um, based in class. And that, that's what I was talking about in terms of understanding our positionality. So if we, mm-hmm. if we can really, um, you know, dig deep into how we are formed as subjects and how that orients ourselves toward the world. Perhaps then we can make some, um, you know, some some more expansive ways of thinking about uh, specific kinds of listening, right? W- without at the same time being essentialist. Again, I, I think that's the that's the challenging <laughs> part, right? You don't want to say yeah. like, you know, yeah. a woman's way of listening. <laughs> <or why> everyone's <laughs> like me this kind of absurdity. Yeah, um, yeah. But I but I still think it's useful, right? Because. Yeah. Uh, certainly in this instance, I, Hungry Listening is not something that uh, is only for settlers, right? White, white settlers. Uh, yeah. the hungry Listening is something that I do, right, yeah. as an Indigenous person, and that yeah. everybody does. Yeah. Um, it's not, it's not, it, it doesn't sort of line up so neatly, uh, with, you know, with a subject. It's a, it's a practice.
0: Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Gender Center for Excellence, a research project of the Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW, Academy of Art and Design in Basel, conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop, and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of gender in the arts, culture, science, and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit dertank.ch or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk@fhnw.ch. at Editing and voiceover Elena Caesar. Music Niklas Kammermeier. Research Team Tabea Rotfuchs and Marion Ritzmann. Press and Communication Anna Franke. Technical Support by Esther Hunziger, Karin Bohrer, Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. Copyright at Institute Art, Gender, Nature, HGK, FHNW 2022.